Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm the senior pastor here at LifePoint Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like a little more information about our church, check out lpchurch.us. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. So it was January the 21st, 1979, when as a seven and a half year old boy, I began to pray a prayer about the most important issue in my life in that moment. And my prayer went like this, God, please help the Dallas Cowboys beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in Super Bowl 13. I knew Mike was in the audience. And then, as we entered the fourth quarter, it was still a very close game. So I knew I needed to turn up the heat on my prayer, and I began to pray, God, help the Dallas Cowboys beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in Jesus' name, you said whatever I ask, and I'm asking. Because I'd heard people pray like that. And the Cowboys lost the game. So I guess Mike's faith was better than my faith, because he was a little boy in Pittsburgh who was praying while this little boy in Dallas was praying, and the Steelers won. And I discovered, you say, well, where in the world would you learn to pray a prayer like that about such a trivial thing like a sporting event? Well, I hear people pray like that all the time, like treating God like a little genie, like a magic genie, like, God, I want this, so I, you told me if I ask it in your name that I can get it. Where do we learn things like that? Well, that's actually what we're going to look at today because people pray like that all the time and make this claim all the time, and we're going to look at the verse that they often reference, and it's a verse that's very misused, and unfortunately, it becomes very costly when it's misused. If you got your Bible, turn with us to John chapter 14. And we're going to look at this verse together. And hopefully, we'll be able to learn something together. Now, we're beginning a brand new series, as Sean said, where we're looking at some of the most misused verses of the Bible. Over the next few weeks, we're going to have some fun looking at verses that get twisted. And our goal is to untwist those verses. And if you're new here, and maybe you're new to the whole Christianity thing, you may have heard Christians take a verse and talk about it this way, and then somebody else over here talks about it this way. You may wonder, well, how in the world are you misusing a verse? Well, you're going to see today how easy it is to misuse a verse. But hopefully, more importantly today, what we're all going to see is how we can handle the Bible better, how we can better understand what the Bible says and what the Bible means, what the author means. There's a couple of tools we're going to introduce that we can all use to avoid twisting the Bible. So with that said, I hope you've got your Bibles. If you don't, there's one there in the pew. You can grab it and turn with us to John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. And we're going to look together at John chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. I want you to see this. Why do people treat God like he's a genie lamp? Well, here it is. John chapter 14, verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, you may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. So you can see why people would misunderstand that God is kind of like a genie lamp. It kind of sounds like it in that verse, doesn't it? You can kind of see why a seven-year-old boy would think if I pray with enough faith, Roger Staubach's going to be better than Terry Bradshaw. Like, you can kind of see that because it looks like that's exactly what is happening here. It feels like if you pray to get the job 
you get the job if you have enough faith. If you pray to get the girl, you get the girl. If you pray to win the lottery, you win the lottery. I mean, it feels like that's what the verses say. And in my Bible, these words are written in red, meaning Jesus said them, so you know they got to be true. But something else is going on here because we hear this interpreted this way all the time. And here's kind of the way it gets interpreted. The twisted understanding of this verse is simply this. The purpose of praying is to get what I want. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? When you really want somebody to be healed, when you really want something for your job or for your career or for your life, you come to this verse because it says, I get whatever I want, ask anything, and I will do it. Like, that sounds pretty good. It's a pretty great verse, really. You ought to memorize that one. And you can really leverage that in some really strategic ways. But let's think about it. If I was praying in Dallas and Mike was praying in Pittsburgh and we're both going to get whatever we want if we believe enough, well, that's not possible, is it? It's like you see a sporting event and both players are playing before the game, God help us win. If they both get what they want, well, then how do you have a victor? If you know somebody that you love and you care about them and you're like, I want them to be healed it's not enough that I'm praying. I'm going to call other people and ask them to pray. And if I get 10 people, then they're more likely to get healed. Or uh, That's not enough. If I get 300 people, maybe they're more likely to be healed. Like at what point does this make sense? Where we think, well, I just get what I want through prayer. And then we, if you play that out to its logical conclusion, it means the louder voice, the largest voice, and the most holy voice, and the most believing voice is the winning voice. Like, it doesn't make sense when you play it out to its end, and yet this is a twisted understanding of this verse is, Jesus just give me what I want, and man, it feels good, and it motivates us. But at age seven, I learned that the genie doesn't grant every wish. More importantly, some of you have been in a place where you've been praying for things that God didn't do that you wanted him to do. In fact, I attended a grief share yesterday with um, several of, of our folks who lead that ministry. And there were several people in there who had lost a spouse over the last few months. And each of them prayed, God, heal my spouse. And he didn't. They died. Does that mean they didn't ask with enough faith? That they didn't get what they wanted? The truth is, I remember being a hospital or hospice chaplain, and oftentimes I would be with people who were terminal patients, and people would come, well-meaning Christians, to pray for this person, and they would pray, God, you said we could ask for whatever we want in your name, so I'm praying you would heal them. By faith, I claim. By faith, I stand on this verse, whatever that means to stand on a verse. I stand on this verse, and I want you to heal this person. And then they would close out the prayer, and then they would say with confidence, I now know or I now believe you will be healed because God said we could ask for whatever we want in his name, and he would do it. Again, play that out to its logical conclusion. It means that no one would ever die. Because if they were healed of that and they eventually got something else, we would pray the prayer again and no one would ever die. The problem is when we claim this verse and we twist it and we claim we know what God wants or we, promise, we put a promise on God that he didn't give, I would watch a lot of people get confused when that patient tragically died. They would become jaded. Sometimes they would even walk away 
from their faith in God because they believe God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And that's where it becomes dangerous when we misuse a verse because we set people up to have their faith crashed when it's wrecked by not getting what they want. And if we interpret this verse to mean I get what I want when I don't get what I want, then I begin to believe that God isn't good, God doesn't care, or God isn't real. And that's where it becomes dangerous. See, I believe that this Bible holds the most important message of all time. And so here's the question I want to ask, and it will be the question of this series, is how, to, how do I avoid twisting the most important message of all? I think we must handle this truth, this eternal truth, with clarity but with intentionality and not make it say what I want it to say or what I like that it says, but what does it really say and then reshape my life around that. How do I avoid twisting the most important message of all? So here's what we're going to do today. Give you a quick overview, then we're going to dive right in. I want to introduce two tools or two approaches, two practices that you can take to every verse that you read so that you don't twist the verse, so that we don't accidentally twist that verse. Two tools that we can use. And then when we see these two tools, then we're going to come back to John 14, 13, and I think we'll better discover what John 14, 13 is actually saying. We're going to try and untwist that misused verse. But first, let me introduce the two tools. How can I avoid twisting the most important message of all time? Two words, context and confirm. In fact, would you just say those two words out loud with me? Say it with me. Context and confirm. Context. Let me talk about that for just a second, and then we're going to dive into John 14, 13 to see what it really means. What comes before the verse and what comes after the verse? What's the, who's the author of the book? What's the theme of the book? Who's the audience of the book? What's the genre of the book? What's the historical, cultural context of this passage? All these things that there's a lot of research, there's a lot of great resources now where we can find these answers pretty easily. I always say it's good to slip into the sandals of the author and figure out who they're writing to and why. What's the context? Because every verse has context and the dangerous thing is like any book if you opened it up and just pointed your finger and read it without the greater context of the book it's easy to misuse that sentence or that verse by itself so we're going to talk about context in just a second the second practice is to confirm and the confirm is to simply see what else the bible says about that topic it's dangerous to take one verse and kind of form a doctrine or a belief off of one verse. Now in this case, John 14, 13 is talking about prayer. Well, what else does the Bible say about prayer? And how can we have a kind of a global understanding of prayer from the Bible? What else does the Bible say about prayer that helps us inform the understanding of John 14, 13? And an easy way to do that is just do a word search on your favorite Bible app. So with that said, confirm and context, the two tools we're going to look at today, we're going to see how that can help us better understand our verse that we're looking at the misused one of John 14 13 so now let's zoom in a little bit how do I avoid twisting John 14 13 using these two tools well first let's look at context the first tool context of John 14 13 let me ask you a question it's not a trick question who wrote the book of John 
I'll give you a hint. It starts with a J, it ends with an N. Who wrote the book of John? Oh, you guys are smart. I knew you would be. I know it's 9 o'clock in the morning, it's early, but you got it. It's John. Now, what's the main theme of the book of John? It's Jesus proving that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is divine, that yes, I came to earth in human flesh, but I am God the Son. This is the theme of the book of John. We see that because in the very first book, verse of the book of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Jesus, He is God, He was with God. And then you see in John chapter 20, verse 31, he actually summarizes, he tells us exactly what the book is about, because he says, this is why I wrote the book. That's what he says. These things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So clearly, throughout the book of John, we see this theme that Jesus is the Son of God. That's helpful to interpret this verse, because the point is, this whole life is about God, it's not about me. He's the main character. I have a minor role, I just have a bit seen for a temporary season. So this whole life is about God, the whole book is about God, and then we get to chapter 14 and we go, well, what's that chapter about? And we, get, we zoom in a little further and we see this one chapter, and then what we see in context is, John chapter 14 is about Jesus preparing disciples to follow him. You remember, right out of the gate he says, that I am going to go and prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may be also. And then he goes, and don't worry, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. It's all about Jesus, it's all about him. He's the main character, not us. And then he goes further in verse 15 of that chapter, right after our controversial verse, and he says, and by the way, don't worry, as you go forward from here, the, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with you always. So it's all about God, and he's preparing these disciples to follow him. That's the theme in it all. And with just that as a context alone, now I want you to re-see this verse with that context in mind. Look at John 14, 13 again, it says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name. Why? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Oh. So the purpose of prayer is not for me to get what I want. The purpose of prayer is for God to be glorified. That's very different, isn't it? When you understand context, it changes what the verse is actually saying. You see the difference because it would be easy to think, God isn't saying, I pray so that I can get money, so that I can get the job, or that I can even be healed. God is saying, I pray so that the Father is glorified in the end. That it's all about God. Now I got to tell you, this morning I was wrestling with this. I got up early and I was, this weekend, I, I, I'll just be transparent, I, I, for whatever reason, I've been struggling just personally with feeling significant or maybe feeling insignificant. And I, and I was just wanting to feel more significant. And I, I was praying this morning, I was like, God, I know you created me. I know you placed me here. I know that you've given me what gifts I have, and you've given me the lack of gifts that I don't have. I know that I'm yours, created in your image. I know I'm internal. I'm, you know, you're, I'm fearfully and wonderfully, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reciting truths to tell myself as I pray. And then I just begin to rem remember, God, it's about you being glorified. God, I want 
my life, instead of me being more significant, God, I, I want to amplify your significance. And I didn't feel that way when I started the prayer. But as I prayed, I began to feel my own heart shift a little bit. And then I, by the time I was done, I was like, God, at the end of my life, my hope is that I will not have been significant. But at the end of my life, I hope I will have used every ability that I have to magnify your significance. And that's this prayer. And that's what prayer is. Prayer starts with me and what I want. God, this is what I want. This is what I'm after. It's about my pleasure. It's about my desires. But as I pray, I begin to align my heart with his. As I pray, I feel my heart shifting a little bit. And by the time I'm done, hopefully I pray and I get to the place where I say, God, I remember this is about you. You're the main character in the story. That's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't pray one time. He said, God, I want this cup to pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the Bible says he prayed that three different times. I wonder if it was a process of his heart shifting to be able to truly say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Paul, when he prayed, I wish you would take this thorn of flesh from me. And eventually he prayed that three different times to eventually he was able to say, however, you are not removing it, and I pray that you would be magnified in my weakness. There's a shifting that happens in our heart when we pray to align our heart with his. It isn't just about me getting what I want, but about me wanting his glory more than me wanting what I want for my pleasure. And I don't know about you, but I read that verse, and I initially read it as, no, I get what I want, and that's what I love. That's where the twisted understanding. But when I see it in context, I am reminded. It isn't about me and what I want. It's about God and the Father getting glory. So just in context alone, we see a different interpretation. Now, real quick, I want you to see the second tool, and that is, well, how do we confirm this with what else the Bible says about prayer? What are some other verses that talk about confirming what the Bible says about this same topic. And so if you do a quick word search in your Bible app, you can see the other verses about prayer. And here are just a few that remind us what the Bible has to say about prayer. First, it turns out when it comes to praying, it's not just about you getting what you want. When it comes to praying, your relationships matter. In other words, your horizontal relationships impact your vertical relationship with God. We see this in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, where it says, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, say these next two words with me, forgive them. Ooh, that's a tough one, isn't it? Maybe the bravest, courageous thing you will ever do is to forgive something of something they don't deserve forgiving. Why? So that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins, which you didn't deserve and neither did I. See, in other words, if you're ticked at somebody, you need to stop and go deal with that before you pray. And this is, this is much easier. Husbands, let me talk to you. 1 Peter 3, 7 actually says that your wives, that you are to treat them with respect so it doesn't hinder your prayers. Wives, you don't have to elbow your husband right now. Just let him be. The truth is, my wife, Ginger, if I'm being a jerk to her, it's going to hinder my prayers with God. That my horizontal relationships impact my vertical relationship with God. Now, let's confirm what else the Bible says about prayer. Because this is important. It helps us interpret it globally or holistically. The Bible also says that your motives matter. Your motives matter. In fact, it's in James chapter 4, verse 3. It says, when you ask, you do not receive. Why? 
because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I don't know about you, I read that and I go, well, yeah, that's actually what I ask for most of the time. I'm asking for stuff for me. Like one of the most convicting questions I can ask myself is, all the prayers I prayed this last week, if God answered them all, would anybody be better off other than me? Often our motives are about my pleasure, about my desires, about what's better for me, about what I want. And this has been from the first century. God used to talk about people who were religious, who would pray these big fancy prayers, and God actually called them hypocrites. Hypocrites. So what else does the Bible say about our prayers? We've got to check our relationships, check our motives, and then finally, your faith matters. We're staying in James. James chapter 1, verse 6, it says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind, and that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, does this mean you have to have perfect faith? No, the Bible says you can have faith of a mustard seed. But you do bring faith to the table, and your faith is not based on whether or not he answers it the way you want him to answer it. It's the ability to say, God, I believe that you can do this, but even if you don't, I still believe. God, I bring what belief I have. There's some doubt in there too, but I bring my belief here to the table, and whatever you decide, I will still believe. It's like when your kids come to you, I have four kids. If they come to me and they ask me to borrow the car or they ask for money, it's one thing for them to ask. It's another thing for them to expect, right? Like they can ask, and if I say no, you know, they got to be okay with that. I may know something they don't. But if they ask and I say no, and they say, well, then I no longer love you. I no longer believe you're my dad. Well, then that's a problem, right? And this is the way we handle God sometimes. We go to him with an expectation or a demanding that he behave a certain way in order for us to continue to believe now if we stopped here in fact quick review we've said the bible reveals that your relationships matter your motives matter and your faith matters if we stopped here and determined what we believed about prayer it would be easy for us to slip into this lane of thinking that some people call a prosperity gospel meaning that you name it and claim it some people say you blab it and grab it you see it and be it like you can speak it into existence you know anybody who does this where they say I'm just gonna put it out in the universe and I hope that I speak it into existence somehow somehow that by I can name that I want that car I can claim it and God's gonna give it to me I can name that I go into that singles ministry and I see her and I'm gonna claim her and God's gonna give it to me I'm gonna have these certain numbers and God's gonna give me the lottery I'm gonna claim it in advance it's this dangerous idea of I somehow have control I somehow have the ability to demand God behave in a certain way but if we continue to do a little word search we see another and this is all throughout the Bible this other important dynamic when it comes to prayer and that is God's will matters God's will matters in fact the author of John 14 13 is the same guy who wrote about this often, and we're going to read one of the verses in 1 John 5, 14. This same author wrote this about prayer. He said, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. So this is when we pray, that we can ask anything. We love that part. That's the same part in John 14, 13 we love. And then he adds this important, important dynamic. And say these next four words out loud with me. Say it with me. According to his will 
according to his will. According to whose will? According to his will. And then it says he doesn't promise that he will do it. It says he hears us. He promises to hear us. And he doesn't promise to do what we want. He promises to answer our prayers in accordance to his will. He probably knows things I don't. He probably has a plan I might not fully know about. And he will answer in a way according to his will, in a way that brings the Father glory. And at the end of the day, and this is what I believe, I believe when we pray, we get to know God more. I believe when we pray, we align our hearts with his. But in the end, I believe the purpose of prayer, the bottom line, is to submit to God's will. And this is a process. And you say, well, I'm not even there yet. I don't even know about God's will. I don't know that I even want God's will, but I know I want the house. I know I want the relationship. I know I want to be married. I know I want to have kids. I know I want these things. I know I want him to be healed, her to be healed. I know I want that. What do you mean submit to God's will? I say just start where you are. Sometimes you don't want it, but you want to want it. And just start there. Say, God, this is what I want, and I'm going to pray until I get to the place where I can say, Father, in the end, I want you to be glorified. I want your will even above my will. And you know why that's so hard? Because most of us live this life as if we are the main character in the story. As if this life is about me. And I have to, as Paul says, die daily and come to the place where I submit to his will over mine. So with that said, context that it's all about Jesus, with confirming that it's about relationships, motive, faith, and God's will, now let's reread that verse one more time. John 14, 13. It says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name. Why? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That you may ask anything in my name, and now we see in accordance to his will, and I will do it. So let's compare a common misunderstanding versus what we're learning it actually says. The twisted version of this is, God will do what I want. And I kind of like that. I'm drawn to that. Because I think I know what I want and what's best for me. But the untwisted truth of this verse is, God will answer my prayers in a way that brings the Father glory and fulfill his plan, and matches his character. And that's where there's the disconnect. Because I just know what I want versus what he may do. Now, consider his first century audience. Consider who heard these words for the very first time. These were his disciples. When they heard Jesus say these words, notice what they thought he meant based on how they responded. When they heard Jesus say these words, they didn't immediately go out and start praying for more money. They didn't immediately go out and pray for a new house. They didn't immediately go out and pray for a new fishing boat. No, instead, they began to try and become more like Jesus in such an extreme way that many of them became martyrs because they were trying to glorify the Father in heaven. That's the part they heard. And that's how they responded, because they knew this message in its proper context. So, I say, when you go from here, you're going to go, yeah, but how do I pray? 
how do I pray going from here? Because I know what I want, and the rest of it's a little gray. I just want to introduce, and we'll kind of have this theme for the last few minutes here, that I think there are three sets of words that you can begin to introduce, or maybe it's an attitude. You don't have to use these specific words, but some kind of a, a process that you go through in your own prayers, and that is I want, I know what I want, I believe, I believe whether you do this or not, God, I'm going to believe. And I submit to whatever brings you glory. I submit to whatever your will is. There's a man in our church, his name is Jerry, who um, has a heart issue. And this week he found out that he is going to be on uh, the heart transplant list. And he's now going to qualify for a potential heart transplant. And obviously for him, that was great news because of the condition of his, of his heart. And he, he called just to share that and to ask me to pray with him about that. And in praying with Jerry, I said, Jerry, I'm so excited to hear about this because what a miracle that we live in the age that we live in where that's even possible, right? And so I began to pray, and I prayed through this process. I said, God, I pray that you will heal Jerry completely and allow his body to be restored that he and Andrea can have many years together. God, that's what I want. That's what he wants. That's what we all want. God, I believe that you made his body and are more than capable of restoring it. But God, no matter what the outcome is, we submit to whatever your will is. And we are so thankful that in the meantime, you've promised eternal salvation and that you will walk with us throughout the entire process. And Jerry was grateful for the prayer. Jerry has a very open-handed faith that he trusts that God's will will be done. Because he, this is an issue I think we all have to settle. And it's dangerous if we don't because too many people are like, no, no, no. I am walking away because I believed, I prayed, God didn't do it, so he must not be listening, he must not care, he must not be good. I am done because he must not be real. Over and over again, we're walking away because it didn't get what we wanted. And I'm just here to encourage you. Would you settle this issue? And here's the issue. This is the ultimate issue. To be able to say, God, I don't believe because of what you will do. I believe because of what you've already done. I believe because of what you did on the cross for me and because you rose your son Jesus from the dead. And because of that alone, I believe. And now I'm coming to you asking you for what I want, but I trust whatever brings you the glory. I trust whatever is your will in this next season. See, you're going to go from here, you're going to pray a lot of prayers, and sometimes you're going to see God do a miracle, and sometimes you won't. But you have to settle this issue. Will you believe, regardless of what God allows or does in your life? I think the hardest thing we have to do is decide that this life is about God. It's not about me. And if he doesn't do what I want to do, it doesn't lessen who he is. It's all about what he has done on the cross and what he did on resurrection Sunday. So, I hope you'll keep praying, and I hope you'll keep praying for big things, but I hope you'll believe even if you don't get the answer you're after, simply because of what God has already done. So now let's make this super practical as we close. Number one, do you have an unanswered prayer? 
Is there a prayer in your life that you've been praying for somebody to be healed? You've been praying for something that you want, for something that you're hoping for, and you're trying to reach out and grab it, and nothing's happening? Then let me ask you another question. Are there any adjustments that are needed in your relationships? Is there a grudge you're holding against someone? Is there anything in your motive where you're like, hey, it's just all about me. I just, I just have an insecurity or there's a desire that I want. It's just, or is there something in your faith where you're saying, you know what, my, my faith in God rests on this decision. Is there something that needs to be adjusted in one of those areas? And then finally, and I think this is the big one, are you submitting to God's will over your will, even his unknown will. God, I don't know why you wouldn't allow this, but I'm going to trust you anyway. See, when you pray, here are the three sets of words. I invite you to consider, based on John 14, 13, I want this to happen. This is what I want, God. This is how I want you to answer the prayer. I'm going to be honest with you. You might as well, but he already knows, right? Bring it to the table and own it. This is what I want. God, I believe that you can do it, and I will believe even if you don't. And then I submit to your will over my will. This is the process of prayer. And sometimes we're at level one, and we just stay there for a while. Sometimes we finally get to level two, and we can hang out there for a while. And then ultimately, we want to get to level three. God, I am submitting to your will, even though I don't understand it. I trust you and what you knowing what is best. Now, I'm going to give you a a chance to pray here in just a second. But first, I want to introduce a verse that we're going to use throughout this series. It really summarizes this series. It's 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. I want to read it once, and then I want you to say it with me once. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. I believe this is through context. And through confirming what else the Bible says, that we correctly handle the word of truth, that we untwist what we want it to say to discover what it actually says, 2 Timothy 2.15. Would you just say that out loud with me one time? Say that out loud with me. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, I want to give you a chance to pray because more than likely you have something on your heart. Some of you have walked in and you have a burden, you have a desire, you have something that's on your mind. And I want to give you a moment to just pray through this process. God, this is what I want. Be honest. You can just own that. He knows, but just share it with him again. God, I believe if you can get there, or maybe you're not at that place where you just have to say, I want to believe that you can do this and I will believe even if you don't. And then finally, God, I submit or I want to submit to your will over mine. So in the next few moments, in the quietness of this moment, I just want to give you a second just to bow your head right where you are. And whatever is on your heart, whatever you brought into this place, would you just begin to pray and pray through this process? I want, I believe, God help me, I submit. Right now, would you just pray right where you are?
right now, I just want to invite you. Would you stand with me? I want to close us in prayer together. And so right now, would you just stand and let us end our time together in prayer? God, I thank you so much that you are here with us. And I know there are a lot of things on our heart today that we bring to the table. We want certain things. God, we just, we deeply want it. I believe a lot of the desires you've given us. Lord, at the same time, we recognize that what Jeremiah says, that our heart is deceitfully wicked and it's not trustworthy. And so we bring that to the table as well. In the end, God, we believe that you're more than able. But God, we, even if you don't, we want to believe. Lord, help our dependence be on what you've done, not what you will do. Lord God, I pray for all of us that we would submit. We submit to your will. And instead of bringing just what we want, God, would you answer our prayers in a way that will bring you glory, that will fulfill your will. May we handle your word faithfully. For your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.